0: You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set up to bring you news, interesting topics, and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 409. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. See us talk.
1: Hallo. Hey, son, hey, son. And we're back.
0: Oh my god, since we started this podcast in 2015, there haven't been three weeks passing without a show going out. No, no. That is unprecedented and we do apologize. Mm -hmm. But uh, we have come across a couple of, well, without going into the details for all scheduling and other issues, almost impossible for us to produce a show or produce a show that is worth sharing. So (laughs) we decided that it's probably best to give it a couple of weeks off. A solid
2: Christmas break.
0: (laughs) A solid Christmas break. So we do apologize, but I really hope that Everyone is happy to hear us back and happy about the fact that we are back and we are ready to roll. Yes. So um, so happy new year, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Happy new year. Happy new year. Happy yes, new year, guys. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so we have completed yet another round around that insignificant, teeny tiny, average sized star hmm. that we tend to call well, it's Sun. That's the best
1: one we've got, so... To our knowledge, at least. Um, yeah. So, um, uh, Sorry, to our knowledge, do you think there could be a hidden sun in the solar system <laughs> that we don't know about, Andros?
0: Well, in the solar system, not necessarily. But closer to us than we think, ah. there might be. I don't know. I don't know, some maybe, maybe. celestial object that
1: we haven't okay. seen.
0: Things are flying around.
1: I would say further research is needed. Yes,
0: further yeah. research is needed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah have you got any um new year's resolutions
1: uh i have one which i do every year and that is to not make any new year's resolutions (laughs) 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 i think that's the safest one you can do and i haven't broken them yet i actually usually succeed in doing that
2: that's so good Admirable, Pontus.
1: One hundred percent
0: accuracy.
2: <laughs> Success rate. <laughs> yeah, but
1: still, a new year brings about the sense
0: of um, of new opportunities, like new things. If you if you feel like you last year you didn't do enough, uh, you want to do more this year. You want to do things better than last year. So it's something that uh, that probably motivates a lot of people to find something to do, something to contribute. Especially for us, is relevant when it has to do with the skeptical movement, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I have one thing for you that you okay. can do, dear listener, if you want to. There's one good way to get involved in the skeptical movement, in the skeptical activism, if you want to pull your tr- straw to the, what do you call that, where the ants
2: live? The anthill?
1: Yes. Is that not a saying in English?
2: No, but you can use it. It's okay. cool. Okay, <laughs> so if
1: you want to... If you want okay. to pull your straw to the anthill, and now we have launched a new saying in English as well, you can sign up as a volunteer for existing projects. And one of those that I really recommend is the Cranky Uncle game. We've talked about this game many times, I think, in the past. And it's it's a perfect way of, of getting involved So, of course, for those of you who don't know, Cranky Uncle is a game that you play on your phone or in a web browser, and you practice your skills in arguing with a climate change denier. So it's a good, you learn a lot about climate change, but you also learn about just arguing and how to formulate your argument. It's very useful and fun, could be used in schools, but also privately, and it was developed by a team led by John Cook, and we've Talked to John Cook on this show, episode 210. If you want to, we talked about this particular project. So what does he need help with? Well, the, the game already exists, but what's going, an ongoing effort is to translate it into other languages than English, because you may want to do that, especially in schools. People may not uh, be able to use it in English. And there's a host of translations already done. I will quickly tell you which they are. It's English, German, Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese, French, Italian, Swedish, Turkish, Albanian, Mac- Macedonian, and Finnish which finished just of the finish of the last year. So um, it, there's 12 of them, if I get it correctly. And uh, there's ongoing work. There's a host of other languages still being worked out. I won't repeat that. It'll be boring radio. But uh, if you want to ship in, we we will put the link uh, in the show notes to where you can go. And uh, You can also listen to episode 313 if you want to when we interviewed Berbel Winkler, who does a fantastic job of coordinating all oh, of yeah. these translation efforts. It, it can't be easy, I must say, because <laughs> there's more than one person working on the same language and they need to be coordinated and there are forms and stuff and it needs to be edited and proofread and blah, blah, blah. So it's a lot of work, but I, I think it's a good thing to do if you want to get involved. Yeah, oh, yeah,
2: and translating and getting involved is also something that GSOW does a lot of. And GSOW, for those who don't know, is Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia. Uh, it was founded by Susan Gerbic who um, we always lovingly refer to as the uh, fairy godmother of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, once upon a time in the ancient times, (laughs) um, she brought together the Pontus, the Andras, and the the Jelena.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And brought us the Annika as well.
2: Yes, exactly. Eventually, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Without Susan, uh, none of this would have happened. (laughs) Thank you, Susan. Yes, thank you, Susan. And yeah, the guerrilla skeptics their goal is to, I would like to say, skeptify and scientify Wikipedia and make sure that Wikipedia pages are in good, in a good state, and are on evidence-based legs, so to say. Mm. And they do that by enriching pages, creating pages, translating pages, and enriching can of course also be done by, like, yeah, adding sources, making them yeah, enlarge them, but also adding uh, photos or audio recordings and yeah it's it's just an amazing thing they do it's and it's having an impact it's as they say it's literally educating the world in your sleep (laughs) so it's it's a great thing that also needs you
0: yeah Yeah. And when it comes to having an impact, it's wonderful what they offer altogether, because when it comes to the overall articles that have been reworked and written up from scratch by the team, we are talking about more than 150 million views now, page views, because there are statistics. There is Mm. a page view tracker that Susan likes to talk about as well. And that is just absolutely amazing what it has provided us with so far. And uh, the current number of page views altogether is at 156,308,485
1: pages. And there's another one there. I just looked up one, so it's not... Five at the end, it's six. It's increasing all the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, yeah. So, yes, educating the world in your sleep. Yeah, you write it up, and if, if it stays there, you'll be doing a great service, not only to the skeptical movement, but to the world. So, yeah, we can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other ways. Um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard about Brian Dunning's new documentary. Well, Mm. if you haven't heard about Brian Dunning, then you can go on to episode 106, where we had him on the show as well. He's a... Brilliant. He's one of the greatest sceptical podcasters out there, the host of Skeptoid and the producer of many, many documentaries, including the one that is called The UFO Movie They Don't Want You to See. And um, <laughs> it um, tries to address the issue of uh, UFO-related cons- uh, conspiracies and uh, how to try to assess UFO sightings and stuff. And the good news is that on December the 1st, he made it available to all for free on his youtube channel we'll of course add the link to the to the show notes but there's more to this because brian wants the movie to reach as many people as possible with the added value of having subtitles in different languages we're going back to the translation project again. So he's on the lookout for translators. Apparently, he's also managed to put together a bit of a budget to cover some major languages. But should anyone be interested in doing any translation on a voluntary basis, please contact him on brian at And He did say, though, he has plenty of people already for French, Portuguese and Spanish. So if you speak or if, if you're a master of any other language, like Hindi that he's specifically after Russian or Italian. Do not hesitate to get in touch with Brian. He'll appreciate that very much.
1: And again, the whole movement will be held by that. Yeah. I think this is a great example. The three projects we've talked about so far, it's a great illustration of how we can work together across borders to. Yes. So it's all what we are about in this podcast. We, why, exactly. why should we? reinvent the wheel in all the different languages if somebody's done something great in one language let's translate it mm-hmm. yeah now that you mention it it's just a reminder for everyone out
0: there and this is why we would like you to spread the word of the ESP the European Skeptics podcast because the reason why we brought this to life eight years ago it's mind-blowing <laughs> we wanted to share all the things that happen in Europe but not necessarily talked about in the English-speaking world with the whole world. So we wanted everyone to know that Europe is so active when it comes to um, activism that it's worth sharing with everyone. A lot of people don't know about them because they are not in English. And it's the other way around. A lot of people don't speak or, or don't feel comfortable speaking or listening to English-speaking content. Then the translation projects become really, really important that we make it available for everyone. All right. um, Sharing content is one very important part of helping out each other. And um, I'd like to finish this round on something that saddens me a lot, for it really shows how difficult it is to find people to do the jobs that dedicated skeptics have been doing for decades. It so happens that our good friend Mike Heap, recently announced that he relinquished his role as the editor of the Skeptical Intelligencer as of January 1st, 2024. To those of you who don't know Michael Heap, he's a retired British clinical and forensic psychologist who's been the chairman of the organisation called ASCII, and I never know how to pronounce that, the acronym, but it's the Association for Skeptical Inquiry. And that has been there for a long time, since 1995. And ASCII has been publishing regular newsletters. And since 2013, a quarterly magazine called Skeptical Intelligenza. It was initially not edited by him, but then he became the chief editor of it. And it's a brilliant collection of stories, articles, and current events that was one of the very few who had an even wider than just UK focus. So it often featured current European events as well and prominent sceptics from other countries. So that was a very uplifting outlook on things happening out there. Just just the, the very thing that we just talked about. There have been a subscription option up until the end of 2023. And unfortunately, Mike has got to a point in his life when he ha- he no longer feels he could do this on his own. And apparently there's not much of a competition to take his seat so i'd like to take this opportunity to firstly thank michael for the brilliant consistent and very hard work that he has put in this project for all these years and secondly i'd like everyone to remember that the skeptic movement is built on the work of heroes like him who are willing to dedicate their time and energy into something they don't get paid for but they believe in and its importance as well Mm. so the least we can do is appreciate them Mm. so mike if you're listening to this Thank you so much. But I'm so happy about the fact that we keep working together in EXO, the European Council of Skeptical Organizations, where he's a member. And that is a delight. So he's a wonderful guy.
1: Yes, he is on the board of EXO, which you are as well, Anders and myself. And we are currently working on the European Skeptics Congress. In uh, Mm -hmm. 2024, it will take place starting 30th of May and uh, go on to the 2nd of June. And you can actually meet not just ourselves, hopefully most of us will be there, but also Mike Heap, because he's one of the speakers there. So he is still around and he's still contributing, even though ASCA is no longer being maintained as before. I will put the link in the show notes so you can see the full program of the European Skeptics Congress. All the speakers have been confirmed. We are working now on getting the registration system to open. It's not quite finished. We're test running it a little bit. Probably during next week, we will get it online. And then you can start to register. And if you are a member of a skeptical organization, you get a quite big discount. If you register before 1st of April, you will also get even more of a discount because there's the early bird price until the thirtieth of 31st of March, I should say. So, yeah,
0: definitely mark your calendars, the 30th of May to the 2nd of June. Do not do anything else that weekend <laughs> because your place is in Lyon, France. Yes. Okay. We do have a lot of things to prepare for the rest of the show. So, um, as usual, we should probably crack on starting with this week in skeptical history. Well, what we like to call Twish. <music> and this week, right about this time in 1349, something was sweeping through Europe. Any ideas? The, the plague. The Plague, the Black Death. Ah. It was a bubonic plague that is now scientifically confirmed that uh, it really was that. The cause of which was Yersinia pestis bacterium, which is spread by fleas. It entered Europe somewhere around the eastern part of the continent – Mostly it was Genoan sailors who probably brought us into Europe. It's not completely clear. However, we have a very good idea as to what caused it. And one thing is for sure, it wasn't the Jews. (laughs) But a lot of people... Sorry, I'd like to say well in advance before we go on with this topic. My choice of topic has no political background whatsoever. The only reason why I chose this topic is because I think it's a great example of scapegoating. It's a great example of how people always tended to believe whatever was more convenient to believe for them. So what is this all about? The Black Plague was there in Europe starting around 1346. But by 1349, some Central European cities have been affected as well. And one of those cities was Basel and basel is current day switzerland one of the northernmost parts of switzerland and it's situated on the river rhine basel was one of the major cities of that time and it was very famous for another thing among the cities in the area and most of europe actually it had the largest community of jews at the time And we're talking about three to 600 Jews altogether. The community was so big in the middle of the 14th century that um, they had 19 big houses in which they lived and a synagogue. That was considered quite a well-established community. Now, Basel was a city with lots of merchants, so lots of money, transactions had to take place as well. And in the Middle Ages, the Jews established a reputation of being those who are providing loans for these merchants and all that. Now, this is why they were very much embedded in society, especially with those who were better off, financially speaking. But the religiously very bigoted and not very well educated and not very well off side of society, obviously tried to find a scapegoat when it came to their fear of the Black Death, because they heard the news. Uh, The Black Death reached a lot of cities by then, and it was so devastating altogether that by the end of the large pandemic that lasted until 1353, an estimated 40 to 60% of of europe's population was wiped out we are talking about 25 to 50 million people mm. who died as a result so obviously the news spread even faster than the plague itself and once they heard that this was going on the only thing that really took hold was that the jews had been allegedly poisoning wells all over the place And that well-poisoning idea was so strongly accepted by the whole community, especially of the lower parts of the society, that they started rounding up Jewish communities and killing them hanging them, burning them alive, and the worst thing took place in Basel, where in the middle of the Rhine, there was some kind of a little island back then. We don't know exactly how it happened. Some chronicles actually mention that a new house was built for them, which was probably not more than just a wooden structure, a, a, a very hastily put together wooden structure where they were forced to move to and the whole thing was burnt with the members of the community in them. So that's what happened. And the sources do not agree as to exactly when it happened. The rounding up of the Jews of Basel started probably on the 9th of January. This is currently quite well accepted. And the most well accepted date for the actual burning of the rounded up community is the 16th of January. So this week really marks what is now referred to as the Basel Massacre. Now, even the survivors were banned or forcibly Catholicized, So they had to be baptised as Catholics in order to be able to stay if they managed to even survive this massacre. Children apparently were not killed, at least not in such large numbers. But even after they were removed in one form or the other, the death did not stop. The interesting part of this whole thing is that even before the Black Death actually reached Basel, there was this sentiment that the Jews are poisoning the wells and the Black Death is spreading because of that. So they started rounding them up before the actual Black Death started in the city. From a current point of view, I mean, as we see now, it's shocking, but this was a little bit of the mindset of the people back then regarding the Jews and regarding things that they didn't understand. They had no freaking idea as to what caused black death. So they came up with all kinds of conspiracies. And Mm. I don't know if that sounds a little bit familiar. I'm not referring to anything related to the Jews, but related to pandemics. So it's we don't understand, so we start scapegoating. And it's phenomenal that even though more than 650 years have passed, we can still be at that point. We can still do things in the same very, very primitive way. This is why it really caught me, this story, when I came across it for this week. Obviously, we will share one of the, the longest explanations of this story with a lot of details. It's worth reading it because you can learn a lot. Even though currently the accepted number is lower than the three to 600, which would have meant the whole population of Jews in current-day Basel then, but even 50 to 70 people burned alive is an awfully high number um, when it comes to falling victim to stupidity and just ignorance and Mm. scapegoating.
1: Yeah, probably didn't help also that uh, the Jews had a reputation of having money so i'm sure that there were people among the mob that took advantage of that and and took the money and and, yeah terrible terrible and unfortunately as we see today it's it's pretty human actually we we think of it it as inhuman but humans act like this Mm -hmm. yeah it's terrible to think about but that's how it is yeah yes yes so
0: i didn't want to bring down the mood but let's see What else can we talk about in terms of what's been happening recently across Europe?
1: Right, so every now and then, measles rears its ugly head. And mm-hmm. uh, new epidemics break out, and we had a situation around 2016, 2018, when we had a huge outbreak in Europe. Uh, we had, we had, it was so big that we had a special recurring segment here on the show just to keep track. And over that period, Europe had tens of thousands of cases and even deaths related to measles. The reasons we can't get rid of measles are mainly two. One. It is extremely contagious. And to Andrew Wakefield, basically, (laughs) the anti-vax movement that he has fueled for the last couple of decades is uh, responsible for a lot of preventable deaths, actually. Uh, As for the contagiousness, you can sometimes catch measles just by passing through a room where a sick person spent some time a few hours before. That's how contagious it is. The guideline is, therefore, that you have to get uh, 95% of a population fully vaccinated or more to prevent new outbreaks. And that's very hard to achieve. Now, the latest example comes from Romania where the Ministry of Health has declared a major measles outbreak with multiple clusters reported across the country. So far, cases have been registered in 29 out of Romania's 41 counties. So almost, well, a major part of the country. Over 2,000 cases were reported during 2023. And early December, they registered the first death for this epidemic. They have had deaths before, and it happens, and also, of course, very severe illnesses. Uh, Regarding this case, I quote from a newspaper report, and I will put the link in the show notes. Quote, a seven-month-old child died on December 5th at the Children's Hospital in Brashov, I think that's how we pronounce it, after contracting measles. Because he was too young, the little one could not be vaccinated against the disease. He got the disease from his three-year-old older brother, who was eligible for the vaccine, but was not vaccinated either, end quote. So here we have a typical example. I don't know for what reason, but the family decided not to vaccinate the big brother. And eventually, the baby brother died from measles. Terrible stuff. mm mm-hmm. Romania has had a very low vaccination rate for many years. As I said, you want to be at the vaccination rate of 95% or higher. But in 2020, a couple of years ago, Romania was at 75%. According, This is according to my older research, uh, and uh, those numbers are from WHO. Uh, that was by far the lowest of the European countries that I had data for at the time. So Romania has had a history of very, very low vaccinations. Now the epidemic is back and it is leading to deaths. Terrible stuff. But Mm -hmm. again, anti-vax movement and Andrew Wakefield has a lot to answer for.
0: Yes. The thing that bugs me the most about this is that there is such an easy solution for this. So yeah. it's not something that's uh, impossible to do. You have to do it. I mean I have a feeling that part of this is not only that people are not willing to vaccinate. I don't know if the data suggests suggest anything like that. Or that there might be lots of places in Romania, because mind you, in Romania there, there are huge differences between parts of the country as to how well-off people are. It could be that there are places where it's simply not available. Um, so um, I'm, I'm not saying that this is the case, but it's not incomprehensible. So uh,
1: Yes, but I, I think one thing that points to that there is a, a skepticism, if you want to use that word, against vaccines in Romania is uh, that uh, there's uh, we have a friend who's been on the show as well, Ovidio Covaccio, who's been on the show several times. And he has yeah. a this Facebook group where he's trying to meet uh, and counter all the vaccination misinformation that is out there. And it, it, last time I checked, it had forty or 50,000 members or even more. So there is a lot of work trying to get people to accept vaccination. Yeah. So – so, as i as you said Anders, i don't know what the proportion is be, that it's not available or that it, people are afraid of vaccines but it definitely is also that people are afraid of vaccines even, even just if
0: there is a portion even a small portion that doesn't vaccinate because it's not available for them then another question emerges whether it's not made available because the authorities Do not feel like it's important enough because they themselves are not convinced that it's so. So, yeah. Um, it could be several different layers that can be added to this, but it's, it's overall just dramatic. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Did you know that? And that's a completely different topic now that large language models actually validate misinformation.
1: Well, I think we've heard rumors about mm-hmm. this. Yeah. Then it's no
0: wonder that misinformation is winning.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a recent study from the University of Waterloo where they um, systematically tested an early version of chat understanding, and that was GPT-3. They uh, tested it in six categories, facts, conspiracies, controversies, misconceptions, stereotypes, and fiction. That revealed that the model is prone to agreeing with misinformation, including conspiracy theories and harmful stereotypes. They used several inquiry templates, and they found that even only slight changes in wording influenced uh, GPT-3's responses, which led then to contradictions and repetitions of the false information. Um, Sometimes it was just saying, I think, because... If you're stating a fact with I think and not your thought, then the model learned from that and replied, like repeated the wrong information, which is, of course, very problematic. And of course, yes, the study was conducted before ChatGPT4's release. The researchers emphasized that its relevance and the potential risks associated with large language models like chatgpt it's very risky because they perpetuate misinformation. The study also, of course, highlights concerns about the inability of the model to consistently differentiate between truth and fiction. So there's really a question of how much you want to trust ChatGPT and how how much you want to verify what you're getting out of there. Um I mean, ChatGPT now has uh, almost like a warning. <laughs> Every time you want to type something, it says, ChatGPT can make mistakes, consider checking important information. But as a teacher, <laughs> you know that I'm a teacher, I'm always like, yeah, but you have to know what is an important information. You have to know which kind of information you should check. So, and if you just trust these models, then it can be problematic. And an example I can give you is that if they asked GPT-3 whether the Earth was flat, it would reply that the Earth is not flat. But if they said, "I think the Earth is flat," they sometimes uh, yeah yeah didn't react to that. <laughs> in the correct way
0: what like it doesn't correct you or doesn't say that you're stupid for thinking that or what <laughs> no, <laughs> what it's, it, what would be the correct way
2: yeah usually it says no the earth is not flat but in between 4.8 and 26% it didn't correct that it mm. agreed with incorrect statements and that's of course 26% is a, is a big amount <laughs> mm. mm-hmm.
1: Well, so, I think yeah. it's all in the name there. Large language models. It is trained to sound good. Yes. It it, it wants to present sentences that are sound good. That are, grammar is correct. It sounds consistent. blah blah blah. Inherently, there is no checks to make sure that yeah. what it says is correct. Only mm-hmm. that it sounds good. Yeah. And that is, uh, and then we expect it to be correct, because it sounds good. But mm-hmm. I've, I've seen that, so, you know, I've asked it to tell me certain things and then it tells me things and I said, oh, I didn't know. Did that person write that book too? Okay, I better check that. No, that person did not write that book. <laughs> it just made it up because yeah. it sounded good.
0: You know what that reminds me of? Mm. gurus and quacks who (laughs) make people believe anything just because they sound so sure and they sound so well-researched because they sound like they know their shit. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they don't. It's just, uh, don't trust them. Check everything. And when we talk about language model, as you said, Pontus, critical thinking has never been part of that language model because it's it focuses on language instead of thinking. Mm. Once we step forward and we get to the level that it will be a way of thinking instead of just a language, just how expre- it expresses itself and how uh, fluent it is in, in communicating with you, which is brilliant, by the way, then we can move on with this problem. But it's brilliant still. The reason why it's capable of telling you so many things is because it has been fed so much data. It had to be taught a lot of things so that it can converse with you. Otherwise, it would not not be able to even speak to you about anything. Mm -hmm. So I think that the lack of critical thinking skills in a chatbot have to be met with a much higher level of those skills. In whoever is using them, so you have to apply those critical thinking mm-hmm.
1: skills. It also assumes that you know that it's a chatbot that has written the text. Yes,
2: because yes. if yeah.
1: you just copy paste it into your blog, people think a human person wrote it. Yeah. Anyway, you you mentioned gurus, Andras. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, gurus yeah. we normally associate with India, right? And uh, one who is a very fan, very big fan of India, or at least. Indian medicine, traditional medicine, is the so-called alternative monarch. Do you remember him? <laughs> <Yeah>. That's <laughs> the right. The
0: alternative prince or the now the alternative,
1: alternative king? alternative monarch, I call him now. <laughs> king Chuck. We're talking about Charles III. Uh, he is a guy who would gladly set back medicine in the UK by centuries if he could. We have reported many times on King Charles promoting homeopathy and other nonsense over the years. We've also interviewed his nemesis, if you will, more than once, the good Dr. Edsard Ernst, who also has written a full book about the guy. It was initially called, quote, The Alternative Prince, but now, of course, it's renamed The Alternative King. So... Kings and princes, right? Many years ago, in a country that we can call the UK, there (laughs) lived a prince named Charles, who thought he understood medicine. He had his own little organization known as the Prince's Foundation. And with that, he was going to change the world. All right. That uh, actually sounds
2: a... very nice, Pontus. <laughs> yeah, it starts as all stories.
1: Don't stop, don't stop
0: now. I want, the, I want the end of the story I as well. I want the fairy tale, well, yes. <laughs> unless, well,
1: unfortunately, it ends uh, not so well as it starts. So uh, let's dispense with the fairy tales. What Charles did set out to do was to create what he called the UK Ayurvedic Centre of Excellence. So if mm-hmm. you're not aware, Ayurveda is the traditional Indian medicine lore, if you will, which was created way before scientific thinking was a thing. And so it's based on a lot of superstition and old tales. It includes herbal medicine, yoga, and not seldom heavy metals. And um, especially the last part can be very dangerous. The danger with the first part is, of course, that you risk saying no to medicine that actually works and take the herbal medicine or the yoga instead. That's very problematic, but it does appeal to many people's sense for what is natural or old wisdom, quote-unquote. Charles' plans included the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and a special Indian ministry called Ayush. At least that's how I pronounce it. I'm not sure how they do it. It's the Ministry (laughs) for Ayurveda, Yoga, Naturopathy, Unani, Siddha and Homeopathy – Huh, that's a long, I, I guess they had to have an a- acronym for that. Mm-hmm. But it's amazing that they have this ministry. Just it, It's the ministry for promoting fake medicine, basically. So he got in to- contact with them or they got in contact with him. I'm not sure how it started. But he and his foundation, it's now called the King's Foundation, of course, but it was the Prince's Foundation at the time, received 110,000 pounds towards building this Ayurvedic Centre of Excellence in the UK. But uh, then things happened, and um, we will never see, hopefully, an Ayurvedic Centre of Excellence in the UK for the simple reason that the NHS will not approve it, and good for them. They will not approve it because it is nonsense. It's not science-based, it's not evidence-based, and it is simply too dumb to be legal in the UK. But what about the money then? The Princess Foundation got this money and already in 2020 it was clear that this centre would never happen. Since this is a charity organisation, this foundation, they cannot spend this money on anything else so they have to return it. But as of today, as far as we know, they are still sitting on the money. And nobody really knows why. (laughs) And uh, yeah, we will see. Maybe uh, Charles still hopes that now that he's a king, he can influence the NHS to approve the whole thing. But I I hope he cannot. He's not supposed to be able to have that kind of power. And uh, Chuck, if you're listening, send the money back, please. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he's listening. Yeah, he should. He could learn a thing or two.
2: Yeah, and as we all know, King Charles is someone who, at least in that regard, doesn't really know what he's doing. But luckily, there are people who know exactly what they're doing and who are really smart. I want to talk about one of them because he got appointed a CSI fellow. And I'm, of course, talking about Nikhil Mukherjee. He is the leader of the German GVOP science board. And yeah, as I said, he got appointed as a fellow of the American Skeptics, the CSI Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. What Barry Carr said to that, and there are like, of course, more than only Nikhil, he said, these are 12 outstanding individuals who have all demonstrated a true passion and commitment to science, reason and skepticism. We are very proud to welcome such an accomplished group of scholars, researchers, academics and science communicators as CSI fellows. So the people who were appointed this year, I won't name everyone, but I will name a few. They were, um, for example, Alan Harris, Stephen Law, Stephen Hupp, Mira Nanda, and also Melanie Treacher-King. And the latter one we probably all have seen on pictures with Susan Gerbig because they traveled Australia together. Mm -hmm. Other German CSI fellows that you guys definitely heard of are, for example, Natalie Grams, Christa Federspiel, Amadeo Sharma, or, of course, Edzard Ernst. Mm. Mm -hmm. And if you want to hear more about Nikhil Mukherjee, then you can also listen to our episode 252, where we took an interview with him. It's from 2020, but it's still very relevant and interesting.
0: Mm -hmm. Great. Okay, um let's uh, finish this round on something a bit more lighthearted, and uh, that is horoscopes. Mm-hmm. As skeptics, we all criticize horoscopes a lot, and uh, we don't tend to believe them, especially those that are published in uh, newspapers or magazines <laughs> and stuff, because those are, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I, I should say that it, they are even more ridiculous than uh, than the big ones, because the the big ones don't make any sense whatsoever either. Whatever. That was a very good idea that uh, was put into the test by Zeit Online. The Zeit is um, a German, is it a newspaper or a yeah. magazine? It's a newspaper. Mm-hmm. They decided that they will analyze... German-language media for their horoscopes that are published in magazines. So what were the magazines? Bravo, Bridget, Cosmopolitan, Gala, Vogue, Glamour, Astroportal, Go Feminine, Schweizer Illustriert, Tag24 and Wunderweib. Oh, and uh, very well done there on the German. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> well,
0: tried my best. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they decided to put together a program They wrote a program that will put together and collect all these published documents of the 12 zodiac signs, uh, how their horoscope plays out according to the different news outlets or magazines. 45,000 horoscopes have been gathered altogether uh, to analyze. And they applied artificial intelligence to analyze the horoscopes of recent weeks and try to find patterns in them contradictions when it came to the same star signs and what the predictions for them were the language itself and whether they had some internal logic errors and then the results were were checked manually there is a good example there people of checking what the ai has done (laughs) because we have to we have to oversee that anyhow the findings seem absolutely brilliant It seems that several of the journals get their horoscopes from the same source. (laughs) So there is a distribution system of these horoscopes. Well, that should make them more alike,
1: right? So that should make them consistent if they get them from the same source.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They tend to be consistent in a way as the same sentences seem to be appearing across several zodiac signs. So that's one thing. There are some who don't offer too much of a variety between the different zodiac signs so they just generalize texts that are very similar to each other and they they don't care so bravo being one of them they just don't seem to care at all <laughs> they even seem to repeat entire horoscopes for weeks without oh. changing them ah and apparently people don't necessarily realize that or they don't
1: (laughs) they don't even notice okay but that that tracks with one thing that i've heard i'm not sure this is accurate but i've heard that the best forecast of the weather is it'll be the same as yesterday so maybe that's what they're shooting for here the horoscope for today is it will be just like tomorrow and like the day after yeah 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 yeah.
0: (laughs) So um uh, patterns like that suggest that there there are a couple of issues with that. Um sex and uh, the attraction of the sex is seems to be a big thing, but uh, there are some abstractions in love as well. Obviously the the key is to not mention things specifically. So the le- least specific you are, the best your horoscope will be because <laughs> it's so vague that, that nobody will be able to to say anything negative about it because It will definitely hit someone. So, yeah, the moon seems to be very much in use when it comes to celestial bodies, and it's probably because it's the most visible among them all. So people need something that is more... Um I should say down to Earth, but it, uh, the moon is is, <laughs> moon luckily is down not, <laughs> not down to earth, but it 's closer it 's like something that that you you feel like you could almost touch
1: uh, it's still a way, whereas a way.
0: further bodies uh, uh, celestial bodies like like a planets are so far away that you don 't even think about them as existing, especially when you 're horoscopically minded um yeah, contradictions, clear contradictions have been found as well and in every tenth text there was something that contradicted the rest of them or most of them so yeah it's just a good example of it's i think it's 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 brilliant that the idea came up and they went with it but it it, it's not a surprise it's not to be trusted it's not to be taken seriously but then again the whole of astrology is the same so you can you can say the same things about that no matter what self-made astrologers will tell you and how they say that the vulgar versions of astrology that horoscopes present in newspapers is not to be taken seriously nothing about astrology is to be taken seriously that's what i'm saying so thank you very much to the tight for Mm -hmm. that um, hilarious find and um Let's move on to finding out who's been really wrong or right lately.
2: I think this week we have a pretty classical recipient, and that is an energy healer and an awesome criminal. And I want to give a little warning. I will talk about sexual assault here. So if anyone doesn't feel well listening to it, then um, please skip this segment. This guy, a self-proclaimed energy healer, is an 85-year-old guy called Jean-Maurice Latsoac. And he recently stood trial for sexual assault, especially rapes during healing sessions. He was convicted in 1994 already for rape and indecent assault of minors. And after he got released in February 2023, he moved to South and uh, faced new convictions for sexual assault. This recent trial involved accusations of rape by um, two women who revealed disturbing patterns during these healing sessions which were usually discussions, prayers, then they should undress. Then he would massage them with oil and then he raped them. S- One victim said that this guy would masturbate in front of her to stimulate her ovulation during an infertility treatment. Pretty problematic. It's um, This is really a criminal. Yeah, at the end of this trial, he was found guilty of repeated rape and sexual assault, not only is he a criminal, as I said, but he also abused the trust that people had in him. Because if you believe someone is a healer, and I don't even say energy healer, but if you say someone thinks someone is a healer, then you give him authority and you trust him or her. And he not only assaulted his patients, he also abused their trust. He was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment. And if you do the math, he's 85. It might be a lifelong sentence, although it's not technically a lifelong sentence. Yeah. For repeatedly abusing the trust and abusing his patience, Jean-Maurice LaZouag receives this week's prize for being really wrong.
1: Mm. Terrible stuff. Mm -hmm. Terrible stuff. And I mean, of course, we pay special attention to this because he was also selling nonsense like energy healing Mm -hmm. which is not a thing yes but uh, it's it's really really terrible and um, yeah what can you say Mm -hmm. and then this happened in france right
0: yeah okay (laughs) well let's not finish on the terrible stuff so annika you usually have very good quotes for us so have you got one for us today
2: Yes. And I thought uh, this uh, week we can have a quote that really fits with being the first episode of the new year. It's a (laughs) quote by Mary Shelley, also often named Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. She was a British writer and is probably most famous for writing Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. She's a fascinating personality, but I want to give you the quote. And the quote is... The beginning is always today, end quote <laughs> oh. so short and sweet, <laughs> but yeah. and I'd like a lot. to
0: refer back to the beginning of the show when we tried to recruit people <laughs> to do translations and stuff. Yeah, if you th- feel like you haven't done enough mm-hmm. so far, if you want to make a change, the beginning is always today.
2: exactly. <laughs> and and it, you only need to start. You don't need to do everything perfect from the beginning,
0: yeah. But tonight there is also an end Which is the end <laughs> to this episode of the show And uh, I'd like to thank both of you Annika and Pontus
2: Thank you <laughs>
0: Thanks a lot And uh, we'll keep doing this So I'd like to thank our listeners as well First of all for bearing with us For waiting for us For a couple of weeks And uh, until next week when we're back Goodbye
1: Tschüss
0: Hello. då I don't know how you can be believe. No, I'll, I'll say it again because it sounded a little bit more like calendar, but uh, <laughs> Plender, yes. you can mark those as well, but it's, it's not necessarily <laughs> if you with the some same. Th- yeah. And
1: yeah. Uh, they uh, no sorry the So now I'm messing up.
0: <sighs> you can do that you're doing it to yourself so
1: Yeah, but I hate it. Okay. <laughs> Probably most
2: firm, firm f- God. <laughs> it's